This is Valley Views, our weekly conversation with influential and interesting folks from around the Wet Mountain Valley. Today on Valley Views, we're visiting with Ron Thomason, chairman of High Mountain Hay Fever, who puts on the yearly Bluegrass Festival, which was right around the corner. Under full disclosure, I am also a board member of High Mountain Hay Fever. Uh, Ron is the leader of the Dry Branch Fire Squad, the host band of the festival. Ron, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me here. This is the week of High Mountain Hay Fever, July 7th through 10th, right there on the bluff. It seems like we were just wrapping this up a few months ago. (laughs) Boy, it takes a long time to wrap up and get started again. Over the years, the one thing that I've tried to do is to obey all the rules that go with a nonprofit. And so this is just about the time of year that I start getting people who want to perform next year, but I can't deal with that even by law until we get done with this event and then make a motion as to what we're going to do next year. Exactly. Now, this is the 18th annual by my count. That's a long run for an all-volunteer organization. How did the whole thing get started? It's a great story. I love to tell it. It didn't get started as a bluegrass festival. We There were people in the community that were trying to find a way to get some money to the clinic in order that uh, children that didn't have access to health care could get some because there were people who just couldn't afford it. It was the long and the short of it. And we were out at a little ranch house, and I think there was five or six couples there, and we're sitting around, what can we do? And it basically just came down to, well, let's throw four or $5,000 in the pot each and um, see what happens, take it over to the clinic. And at the end of the year, we kind of went over to check and see what happened, and it was almost nothing. It was like, and the, the people at the clinic said, basically, people don't want to take charity in this community. And, and, you know, outsiders, a lot of us were new here, and so uh, this wonderful person that in the community had helped build a library and bought all the books and everything, his name was Will Sibold. He's, he's passed away since uh, then. He just looked over at me and said, well, you know how to have a bluegrass festival. Let's do one of those. And that <laughs> we were off and running. And I actually admitted right away, I don't know how to do one. I've done one, but who knows? <laughs> That's funny. Will was a uh, great member of the community. I knew him reasonably well, but when we had a show down in New Orleans, uh, he insisted that we go out to his favorite restaurant, and we had we had the greatest time. That's the way it was with Will. Will Will actually got uh, Ralph Stanley to drink a whole bottle of uh, <laughs> Pappy Van Winkle one night too after the show. <laughs> So the festival runs four days, the 7th through the 10th of July. There's a dozen bands. There's 800 to 1,000 folks each day right on the bluff. What did the first one look like? Well, the first one, (laughs) that's a good question. The first and the second were at the rodeo grounds. And uh, we kind of got away with it. The first uh, one, we didn't have any problems that uh, I remember. But the plain fact was we also didn't have very many people that came. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was another one of those. Well, and, and I remember Will telling me, he said, here's the deal. He said it to me. He said, don't you worry. 
I'm going to cover this if anything goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And because I was worried, I I I put put on bluegrass festivals, and I knew that the, it sometimes takes four or five years for them to kind of get legs. So, but the second year, there were these terrible storms that came through, and they they blew away the tents, and they blew away some of the uh, people. I remember <laughs> I remember one of the guys in my band was trying to hold a tent down, and it just pushed him right up in the air. So. We thought, well, we need a different venue, and uh, it turned out to be the bluff. There's not a prettier place on the planet, I suspect, to hold a festival. It's it's quite the view. Um, I was talking to a fellow who was a volunteer possibility, and he said, I've been to 90 or so festivals over the years. He said, my favorite one is this one. Isn't that and, something? And that's amazing. What makes this one unique? High Mountain Hay Fever turned out for me from all the people that have helped with it to be a labor of love i mean i don't know how to say it any other way we can't afford the big famous bands Mm -hmm. but we get uh bands and performers that are in many ways way better Mm -hmm. and the people that come are not necessarily Bluegrass aficionados, although there's some, and and I try to talk to them personally because we we try to, we also have workshops and we try to help people learn with their instruments and things. And I actually think, uh, tried to learn over the years that it is the size of the festival that makes people feel so welcome and so friendly, and and you don't have people that are going to run over you. Sometimes you got to walk four or five blocks to park and things. It has a, a certain Western Colorado flavor to it that no other festival in this country has. Interesting. Uh, who are a few of the bands that uh, folks will be hearing this year? So on Thursday, we have Tenderfoot Bluegrass Band, from, and they're from uh, Denver or the Denver area, Orchard Creek Band. We have Ragged Mountain Bluegrass, which is pretty local, uh, a mm-hmm. band from down on the Arkansas River. Ismay, uh, which is run by uh, Warren Hellman's granddaughter, okay. uh, coming from California. And the Cody Norris Show, which is just the act you've got to see to believe. I think always, if you want to see the old kind of outfits that bluegrass he'd, people would wear. He'd, he makes, uh, he would embarrass uh, Porter Wagner. With yes, the, with yes, his, Porter with say, dang, <laughs> gone. Cody, where did you get that uniform? <laughs> then we have a Dry Branch Fire Squad and the Kathy Kalick Band. Chris Bashir and Peter McLaughlin. Uh, they're going to actually do a workshop on all things that have to do with um, canyons and uh, the Western way of life, <laughs> which they live quite well. Uh, the Price Sisters, so glad they're going to be here. And we have a band called Dayton, which is literally from Dayton, which uh, plays the old Dayton bluegrass music that is is part of the... What do they call the, the the movement? Like the Appalachian migration. Yes, uh, migration. Mm-hmm. The people that uh, took the what they call the the road of the baloney rhines from <laughs> uh, Kentucky and Tennessee up to mostly to Detroit back in the days, but many of them stopped in the central Ohio and 
Joe Mullins and the Radio Ramblers, I, I don't mind saying, is probably my favorite band that plays today. They've just got it all. We got Heidi Claire, hmm. and uh, she will dance and fiddle like nobody's business. She is a champion old-time fiddler. Joe Mullins has agreed to uh, do a radio interview, so we'll be airing that over the next month or so. I had the pleasure of doing that before. I, I spent a fair amount of time in that uh, southwestern Ohio myself in Oxford and Cincinnati. So, oh yeah. In fact, I came Miami from Miami University. Exactly. Maybe? Yeah. I came from Cleveland. I never heard a bluegrass song uh, until <laughs> I went to college, and I went to the uh, the student union because they were having bluegrass tonight, and uh, it was the Country Gentleman. And oh, yeah. That was, that was my introduction to uh, bluegrass. So, uh, well, you were lucky. That's, uh, <laughs> that's as good as it gets. And John Duffy was like a funniest human being in bluegrass music. It was, it was classic. Now, Dry Branch Fire Squad has been together since about 76, as I recall. That's How right. do you keep something like that together that long? Well, I wish I knew. I don't, there's no secret. Um, I've, I've always been lucky, for one thing. I mean, it takes some luck. I was just wanting to be in a little band, and we were we were playing a couple of clubs and stuff. And one night, Bill Monroe came in, and, <laughs> and uh, he uh, he got up and played some music with us, and said things like, "And hey, now you're not so bad on the mandolin here yourself, young man." <laughs> and uh, then he hired us to play at Beam Blossom, and that, so that made us have to get a little serious. And uh, about three weeks after that, uh, Ralph Stanley and the Clinch Mountain Boys came in with uh, with George Shuffler, the greatest bass player that ever played in country music. And uh, he and I became friends and were friends. I actually conducted his funeral mm. a few years back. We had him out I, here. I do remember that. And what a gentleman. But, you know, when, when you have a little bit of luck like that to get started... Uh, and the other thing that I've always tried to do is is have, not necessarily have the best musicians, but the best people that I can get to have around me. And um, I think that that helps a band stay together. But there's a lot of people that can play and sing, and they're just uh, not fun to be around. I, <laughs> I don't know how to say it any other way. And I've been run over the, the rails a couple of times. I, I won't give any names but the worst one i ever had was uh, back about we'd been doing gray fox for or no it was still winter hawk at that time and my neighbor came running out one day and uh, said that that there's a guy on the phone wants to talk to you i was making hay in the field and i said well tell him i'll call him back he says he wants to talk to you right now it's an emergency about the festival I said, okay, and it was just across the road. I came running up, and it was a person that everybody would know if I called his name. But he wanted to talk to me about the kind of cheese and uh, <laughs> uh, beer we would have in the green room tent, and uh, <laughs> would we be able to uh, give him some specific meal? Well, I gave him three meals a day to start <laughs> with, you know. And I just got mad. He's got mad, and I've never, uh, you know, I, I felt like I needed an apology uh, because it's a big festival. Everybody gets to eat, uh, you know, more and better than almost any other thing. And we've only run into people like that a couple of times. Uh, a, 
And I thought, that's just a low blow. You know, there's just some people you don't want to visit with anymore. <clears throat> Luckily, I suspect those are the rare occurrences. They are, and you'll never see them at high mountain hay fever <laughs> as long as I'm chairman. <laughs> so let me ask, you play multiple instruments, but the mandolin is probably your go-to instrument. And the specific instrument that you play is quite unique. Uh, uh, as I recall, Gibson F5 Lloyd Lore, the holy grail of mandolins. Uh, Antonio Stradivari to the violin is what Lloyd Lore is to the mandolin, uh, from my perspective. Uh, tell us about that instrument. Well, I think you pretty much nailed it down. It is true that if you go to the Webster's Third International Dictionary, and look up the word luthier, or luthier, there's a picture of Lloyd Lore in that <laughs> dictionary because that's how famous he was for different instruments that he built. He was the first person to build an electric guitar for Gibson Company. He was the first person to understand fully the way of the woods and, and went all over the world or sent people to get these great woods and then he was so persnickety that finally Gibson had to uh, fire him because he was using these the the woods and and building the instruments. But then when he would uh, assess the instruments, he would just pitch them or throw them away, or you know they, they didn't they meet just the standards. Yeah, they didn't meet his standards. I have been told that there were almost 300 Lloyd Lord Manlins at one time, but he only built them for, uh, I think it was uh, three years. He started in 1922, and his last uh, two he didn't even sign, but there, uh, a fellow in my band has one of them. Hmm. And uh, over the years, they've increased in value because so many people have used them as collector's items now. And there is a little manual out that uh, got about eight or ten years ago that uh, had done a lot of research on it and had 99 as still being played at that time. I think it's probably more like 40 or 50 now. Oh, wow. And there's people that have them that just, that just collect play them. You just know. collect them, him. Yeah. They do that, and they're afraid to take them out and play them. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I remember when I got mine, I traded an apartment house for it. And I always like to tell people <laughs> this was when you could still get one for just one apartment house. But uh, the great Hazel Dickens, she said, you'll never take that out and play it. And I said, yes, I will. It means something to me. It's mm -hmm. like Monroe's mandolin. He, he always played it. And he had two at one time, mm -hmm. the lowers. And um, there are people that always play them, and they still do, and, and I'm one of them just because, and I will, I will say this, it could be reckless. It's like a person that uh, maybe overworks a really nice automobile or something. I don't know how to, uh, a good allegory for it would be, but um, I love the sound so much and the, the so many wonderful ancient tones that come out of that. And you can't, you just, there's no other instruments that do it. And those kind of instruments truly get better the more they're played. If they sit in a case someplace, it, it's not helping the instrument, I, I don't think. so. I agree. I, I think that's, uh, among people that, that try to have good instruments, I've heard that they'll put them on like speakers 
<laughs> let oh, the vibration let them vibrate. Do. So, well, that's cool. That's it's a very cool instrument. Uh, let me ask: if we could magically bring Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass music, back, what would he think of the the genre and the scene today? A great question, and. After all these years, I think I know the answer. And I would, if you'd asked me this five or ten years ago, I, I probably would have thought nobody can get in Bill Monroe's mind. But I've watched it and, and studied it so much now that I, there was there were big changes in him. He started with uh, Flat and Scruggs and Chubby Wise and those people, mm-hmm. and was very jealous about his music. The thing that that always amazed me is that bluegrass music just jumped into the world fully formed with Monroe at the head. And within just two or three years, there were three or four groups, well, three that I know of, the Stanley Brothers, Mm -hmm. Flatt and Scruggs, and Monroe. Monroe was quite jealous of, of those. He thought that they were taking his music. But... As things turned out toward the end of his life, he underst- he really grabbed on to the fact that he had made a big impression. The, the one big thing that almost everybody in music needs to understand, if they want to understand Bill Monroe, is, is what's called the offbeat. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the, if you're tapping your foot to music, Monroe really invented the beat that's when your foot's up in the air Mm -hmm. and even drummers and people that did things like that they 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 never did that offbeat and that's what built rock and roll Mm -hmm. and i I remember i was asked to actually uh, induct Mm -hmm. bill monroe into the rock and roll music hall of fame (laughs) and it was a great honor but it was easy because I was looking at all these rock and roll people, and nobody had even ever thought about where that backbeat came from. from. But the backbeat's the definition. I mean, of you look at music. Ringo Starr and the Beatles. Uh, yeah, you know, that was that was I it. Mean, he he uh, perfected that, if you if you will. So we're way over time, but that doesn't mean there's not more questions. If you could assemble a band f- uh, to play in your living room of folks living and dead. Who might you invite? Well, that's a good one. Uh, I would love to have that chance for the simple reason that I personally love old-time music. And I love the gift that old-time music gave bluegrass music. And uh, I would have to... I'd have to decide at that time, am I going to have a great old-time band here in my living room that's going to lead into bluegrass music, uh-huh. or am I going to have a great bluegrass band? And um, since the question at hand has to do with bluegrass music, I would say that uh, the mandolin player, above all, would be Bill Monroe. And uh, the reason is because he had so much strength. He he, he hauled logs. He, he went to um, Chicago and threw tractor tires around. And he just had so much muscle that he could put into his playing. And he did it so hard that uh, people could hear that. Earl Scruggs would be the banjo player. Nobody's ever beat him. Nobody's. Most people... 
and it, these days can't even play like that, but it, early on people really tried to do it. And therein lies the problem because uh, I'd had to have Ralph Stanley as the lead singer and probably the tenor singer because he was, he was in my opinion, actually a better singer than Monroe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could sing lead and tenor, and Monroe was a great tenor, but uh, Ralph could go up there just as high. Imagine my guitar player would be Carter Stanley mm-hmm. because he brought both things into the music and uh, uh, he played the guitar like uh, Maybell Carter. He played it with a thumb pick instead mm-hmm. of a flat pick like almost mm. everybody does today. And my fiddler would be Kenny Baker. Ah, and Classic, uh, yeah. If it went to all the way to the dobro, it would be Uncle Josh. Because those people have never, no one's ever played better than they did. And that's what I meant when I said bluegrass jumped into the world fully formed. And so it's gone through a growth thing, which now we represent at High Mountain Hay Fever. Uh, High Mountain Hay Fever has a good uh, mix mix of th- people. And I appreciate the distinction of uh, bluegrass versus pre-bluegrass. Because you could go back to... Gid Tanner and Uncle Dave Macon and and get that pre-bluegrass, that's a whole different sound. If people want to hear a pretty good representation of what ha- was happening just before bluegrass, Oh Brother, We're Out Though, the uh, Coen Brothers movies, uh, captures that pretty well, I think. Exactly, exactly, yes. And uh, and so does Heidi Clare. I mean, I, I'll wake up some mornings and she's playing Mozart, but to my ears, she's the best old-time fiddler I ever got to hear because she's in her prime. And most of those people, they weren't discovered until they were very elderly. That's a good point. Ron, I appreciate you stopping by. Let us remind folks, uh, July 7th through 10th, right here in Westcliff on the Bluff at the Bluff Park is High Mountain Hay Fever, the 18th uh, annual, I believe. Uh, also, let's mention that over $700,000 has been given to local charities uh, from that festival, most of it uh, pushed toward children's health or children's well-being. That's correct. Ron, thanks for stopping by. I'll let you get back to haying. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> We've been visiting with uh, Ron Thomason, chairman of the board of High Mountain Hay Fever that puts on the annual Bluegrass Festival. Uh, as I like to say, he's the master of the mandolin, the lord of the lore, the earl of the eight string, the fellow who frets the FIs, and the guy who plays the Gibson. We'll see you next time on Valley Views. You've been listening to Valley Views on KLZR 91.7 FM. Valley Views airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., and again on Saturdays at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Valley Views is produced by the volunteers of KLZR 91.7 FM. I'm walking on a rainbow with my feet on solid ground. I'm walking on a rainbow.